Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We're a podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I'm your co-host, Brent Henson, and we didn't want to end the month of May without releasing an episode where we focused on mental health as May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Now, mental health is uh, one of those topics that we've touched on in several episodes, but today's guest is going to talk specifically about the complexity of trauma while on the job and some of the ways to heal from that trauma. But before we bring him in, allow me to introduce our host. He is Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? I'm doing good, buddy. How you been? You know what? It's getting closer to uh, summertime and sunshine makes me happy. That's what John Denver says. Well, you know, uh, we were talking before Christmas is a busy time of year for, for many people, but I find this time of year to be at least as busy with all the graduations, you know, end of school. It's appropriate, I think, that May is Mental Health Month because there are so many outside pressures coming in. You and I were talking that you had a a busy little stretch here uh, recently that involved graduation. So I think it's really timely that we're going to be talking about this today. Yeah. And one thing that I appreciate that the church that I go to is we're actually doing a series where we're talking about mental health, which is something that you don't normally hear people talk about in church. So I'm really glad that we're covering the subject because there's a taboo to it and a, a stigma to it, and it needs to be broken down. Absolutely. It's very difficult to heal if you don't address the, the injury or the illness. And that's that's incredibly important. So why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest and let's see what he's got to say for us today. All right. Well, our guest today started his career in the United States Air Force as a security forces officer after his service in the Air Force He went on to join the Walnut Creek Police Department in California, where he worked as a patrol officer, an FTO, public information officer, and patrol sergeant. Just last year, he co-authored the book, Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma with Dr. Shauna Springer, one of the world's leading experts in psychological trauma and healing. As Mental Health Awareness Month comes to an end tomorrow, the struggles that many first responders face will continue on. So he's here to talk about breaking down that stigma often associated with mental health and providing insight, hopefully, to those listening who need it right now on some of the programs and resources that were beneficial to him. It's our extreme privilege to welcome to the podcast, retired Sergeant Michael Segru. Thank you so much for taking time and joining us today. Thanks for having me on. To, to go ahead and set things straight, going back and forth, should I call you sergeant? Should I call you captain? You know, uh, sergeant, captain, captain, sergeant. I'm not sure where to go with it, but uh, you've, you, you've worn a couple hats in your career, haven't you? I have, but I, I'm retired, so you can call me Mike or Michael. That's that's good enough. <laughs> Re- retired a good title, isn't it? <laughs> it is. One of the best titles. Hey, so I, I want to start off, and uh, if we could, let's talk about uh, your military career for a little bit. How did you end up in the Air Force to begin with? So it's kind of actually a long story. I'll try to make it short, but early on as a young child, I had an interest in both law enforcement and the military. Uh, My grandfather was in the Army Air Corps, and he served during World War II. And my stepfather, who raised me, he was in law enforcement here also in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so early on, I became a police volunteer, eventually a police explorer. And my original plan was to go into federal law enforcement. And with that being said, I knew I needed a college degree. And I needed some experience above that degree. So I decided to look for a scholarship to the military. I actually got a full scholarship to the Air Force ROTC program. And originally, I was just going to do four years. That was going to be my commitment. I was going to get out, go into federal law enforcement. But a lot of things happened. A lot of things changed. Um, I did get my first career choice, which was security forces, which is basically military police, anti-terrorism, air base ground defense, uh, foreign airfield assessments, nuclear security, a whole bunch of cool stuff. And I ended up being stationed all over the U.S. Eventually, I got sent to Germany, and that's actually when 9-11 happened. And shortly after that, I found myself in the Middle East. And so my commitment ended up being longer in the Air Force. I ended up staying six and a half years. I got out as a captain in 2004 
And that's when I went straight into civilian law enforcement because in my military experience, I learned that the federal way wasn't all that I thought it was or as exciting <laughs> as, as they made it up to be. So I, I realized my passion was being on the street, you know, pushing a black and white, going to calls and, and basically interacting with people every single day on the streets. You have some unique experiences. And for our producer, I do have to ask this question. Uh, did you serve ever in Guam? I didn't, although I wanted to go to Guam. Guam was actually one of my first base choices. Um, but unfortunately, I never made it out there. But I'm hoping someday to at least go visit and do some scuba diving. Our buddy Aaron, he, he spent quite a bit of time there. His his dad was Air Force. That, that seems to be the first question he asked just about everybody. Because <laughs> apparently, I think a lot of people have been to Guam. I, I want to ask you, though, because I, I find this this aspect interesting and you've done both the civilian and the military side when you graduated from college you were immediately put into a leadership position as a commissioned officer a second lieutenant and and that is different than what we find in the civilian world because when you first come out you first enter the job you enter at the very bottom uh, of the hierarchical scale how is the military in your opinion, I'll ask you, how were you able to pull off as a young person being a leader of others with literally zero experience? You know, it comes down to really one one good answer, and that's other good leaders. So I remember my first real assignment as a security forces officer, I was in charge of over 60 personnel tasked with protecting the nuclear missile silos in both Nebraska and Wyoming. And my commander she was a missileer. She wasn't a, a law enforcement officer, but she sat me down with my sergeant. He was a tech sergeant. And she said, look, Lieutenant, this sergeant next to you has been doing this job for like 15, 17 years and knows these missile fields like the back of his hand. And he's been pushing troops his whole, his whole career. And so basically she said, you know, sit back, shut up and listen and learn from this guy. Because I had such a good, strong NCO as a young officer, that really helped shape my leadership skills because I'll be honest with you. I mean, a college degree, even the training program through the military, I mean, I was very young. I was still what I considered pretty immature. And so to be in charge of that many people and I mean, that kind of responsibility, I literally leaned heavily on the seasoned NCOs and other officers too, the ones that I looked up to. So a lot of mentorship, a lot of guidance, I would say. I'm a big fan of those who are able to lead up the chain of command. And when you have a good NCO like that, and this is my experience, and and maybe yours is different, perhaps one of the things that the military does better than civilian law enforcement is that leading up the chain and the willingness to be led by someone below you in the chain. But that's the only way it really can work effectively. Would you agree? A hundred percent. And that's you know, the cultures between law enforcement and the military are very different. I think the average citizen would think they're very similar. But um, like you said, even the level of camaraderie and the level of teamwork I found in the military, it just, it seemed like there was a much bigger sense of purpose and belonging. Whereas in the civilian law enforcement career, I really felt like it was like everyone out for each other. There was a lot of competition and much more stress. And it didn't really have that same family feeling that the military had. Well, it's been my experience, not only personally, but also in traveling around and and visiting agencies. I think that the military, by and large, does a better job of big picture, making the big picture applicable. The Air Force, I think, is an airman in the Army. It was to the private. They, They understand they're part of that bigger picture. And that greater sense of purpose affects and impacts how we go about our job. Oh, absolutely. And that, you know, that instills pride and like you said, dedication and service. And again, not putting anything away from civilian law enforcement, because I think that actual job is much more difficult than military law enforcement. But like you said, just that sense of the bigger picture, belonging, teamwork, it's much, much stronger, I would say, in my humble opinion, in the military versus civilian law enforcement. And so then you transition, though, from that military life into the civilian law enforcement career. How was that for you personally, going from being a boss and as a captain, you're a boss of bosses. How how do you make that transition from that type of position to a position of you're the newbie? 
Okay. You need to sit over there, shut up and don't touch anything. Well, I've got some funny stories. I mean, especially day one of the uh, law enforcement academy. When I found out my TI, my training instructor was an ex Marine sergeant. Of course, when he knew I was an air force captain, he definitely had some fun with me. (laughs) You know, the, the, the thing is, is that part of the reason I got out of the military is because as I got promoted, it was more, it was, I would say less hands off and more administrative and more management and decision-making. And I really wanted to be out there in the field. Like, so when I transitioned, it was almost like a huge burden of stress just came off my shoulders because instead of worrying about 60 or a hundred other people, I literally just had to make sure myself was squared away as opposed to, you know, my squadron or my, my flight. And so that part was, was really nice. And funny story back when I was a first Lieutenant in the military, my commander, when I left assignments, he gave me a bronze stamp 1408 and a 1408 is a DOD traffic citation basically because he would always rag on me because I'd be out there as a lieutenant running radar and LIDAR and pulling people over and writing tickets. And, you know, so it said denied stamped in big red letters on this bronze plaque of this ticket. And it was just like, Hey, that's all good, sir, because I'm getting out soon and I'm, I'm going to go write some more tickets in the civilian world. So, <laughs> you know, what was your Academy experience like mine where, where first day they say, okay, uh, where are all the veterans out there? Oh, it's yeah. like, son of a gun. You know, yep. I just wanted to ghost through this thing. I didn't even want them to learn my name until like week six or whatever. And yep. it's like, okay, uh, you're going to be a squad leader. You're going to be a platoon leader. You're the class. Leader. I said, no, that's not what I wanted out of this. Oh, exactly. Especially like I said, when they found out I was a captain, it was like game over, you know, and it was just like, man, I just want to be like unknown. I want to just fly under the radar and just kind of sit back and relax through this. But yeah, that didn't happen. So I did this so I wouldn't have to be responsible for other people. You know, <laughs> exactly. My, my career change is not working out already right at the very beginning. <laughs> exactly. Tell me about yourself. How would you describe yourself as a brand new officer? What were you like? Because when I say brand new officer, you weren't a brand new officer, but you were a brand new officer to the actual front line, for lack of a better term. I was. So I remember like when I was in the field training process, I just wanted to literally be on my own. So like that first day when my training officer was out of the car and I was by myself, it was excitement. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was nervous you know, the first couple of calls, first couple stops. But early on in my career, I made a goal that I wanted to be undercover someday. We had a regional drug task force that was assigned to basically the state DEA at the time. And I knew to get there that I had to be super proactive. I had to be out there catching the bad guys, you know, pulling guns and dope off the street, turning informants. And so, man, I hit the ground running. When I, when I went out there, I was making like 20, 30 stops a day, whether that's car stops bike stops, ped stops. I mean, the dispatchers hated me because I was just literally like, you know, it didn't help that I did a six shot latte before I hit the street. So I was just like, let's You're do full this. You're know? vinegar right off the bat, right? <laughs> exactly. And so on average, I was like arresting one or two people a day. I mean, you know, like I said, 30 stops a day, but 12 to 14 tickets a day and I, and the calls I was going to. So it was just I was loving it. It was like a dream come true. But but that that probably had to do a little bit with your experience because you recognize that if my goal is to be in this position, then I have to start earning that position now. And, and that's something as as someone who was a previous boss who had impact over people's career that you probably recognized a little more clearly than perhaps the other people that were in your academy class or were in the same FTO program that you were in. Well, I agree. I even take that all the way back to childhood. Um, Since eight years old, I had a plan. I mean, literally, I had my life mapped out. I knew what I needed to do. I knew where I was going. And, you know, and as you know, that all changes later on in my life where my plans got derailed, where I thought I was going, I wasn't going and and things just did a 180. So um, that was a big adjustment for me because pretty much my whole life, it's like, I've got this, I've got this planned out. I know exactly what I need to do. And uh, sometimes things are out of our control. I know I'm speaking in in general terms here, kind of stereotypically, but perhaps that's one of the things that's lacking in our profession right now is that ability to adapt when things don't go our way. We have this map and I'm a planner. Okay, I like things to be organized, 
but things don't always, even, even if we get to where we want to be, perhaps the route had to be different or perhaps the timing was a little bit different. That's an important skill to have, whether you're in the military or if you're in law enforcement or in your case, both. It's critical. It's absolutely critical. I mean, you know, both the military and law enforcement, every day is different. Every contact's different. And you never know what you're going to encounter. You never know what to expect. I mean, every person we contact could be a potential lethal threat or it could be benign. And the thing is, you have to be able to de-escalate or escalate in literally a split second and sometimes go back and forth on that scale. So, yeah, you have to adapt all the time. My dad used to say when I was little, uh, son, you got to learn how to maintain and improvise. And then when I got into the radio world is you have to learn how to punt. That was the, the big thing there. If something goes wrong, you got to figure out how to punt. Exactly. Change of field. You got to change the field. Exactly. One of the things that I've always wanted to know, okay, uh, and, and this is me thinking with no, no background in this, it would seem like that the people that you would encounter when you were in the military law enforcement that they were perhaps a bit more subjective or willing to subject themselves to your authority than perhaps you have in the civilian world, because they often have the same type training. They're in that same hierarchical system that you're in. What was that? What you found when you made that transition? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like you said, when you're in the military, so military law enforcement, you know, obviously we contact mostly other military people or their family members that live on base, uh, but there's also contractors, civilians, but all these people have had like background checks, you know, there's requirements to be on base. There's definitely severe repercussions if you were to not comply or not go along with orders. So, you know, when it came to the military, I don't remember a single occasion where someone didn't listen to me, where somebody didn't follow my orders. And in civilian law enforcement, I mean, the majority of people, they want to argue with you. They want to make excuses. They don't want to listen. You have to tell them things repeatedly. So even just that is very different. And I would say, too, that in the military, a lot of things are black and white. I mean, especially when you're talking about, like, nuclear security or you're talking about protected assets inside a base versus, you know, laws, whether it's infractions, misdemeanors, felonies. Some of those could be very gray. Some of those you can use discretion, but certain things in the military, there is no discretion. I mean, it is black and white. It's that simple. You're either allowed here or you're not allowed here. Exactly. A lot of people don't recognize that you lose some of your personal freedoms when you sign on that, that line right there, when uh, you enlist or, or you become an officer in the military that you don't have to give up when you're a civilian. True. But the, the flip side to that is, so when I was in the military, you know, when I was off duty, I mean, granted, you know, I still had to answer to my commander and my sergeants, but generally I was off duty and I, I was not expected off base or as a off duty, you know, officer to intervene or do a law enforcement task where on the civilian side, you're literally a law enforcement officer 24 seven. And there may be times that you do have to intervene or you do have to identify yourself as a peace officer, you have to act. So I think also that burden of responsibility, but also the stress, the stress of being on hyper vigilant and, you know, hyper alert where you're always on guard, you're always looking around because when I was stateside in the military and I was off duty, it was like, man, we're hitting the bars, we're hitting the clubs, we're going to go have some fun. But as a civilian cop, it's like, you can't ever have too much fun because you never know what's going to happen or what's going to go down. So it's very different climate when it comes to that. Those who haven't been in, in law enforcement don't know the feeling of going to a restaurant or, or going to a store and looking over going, man, I know that person from somewhere. It's like, oh, crap, that, I arrested them like a month ago. And, and you're like, oh, please don't let them be my server. I got to I got to go to a different line. You know, obviously I don't shop at Walmart because I'm the cashier in my own line. But if you see a cashier about to ring you up, you know, you know, the double charge you and stuff. That type of attempt at hypervigilance has to take an emotional and mental toll on the members of civilian law enforcement. It does. It's absolutely exhausting. And, you know, you just brought back a memory where I was out shopping with my young daughter and we were at like Home Depot or one of those warehouse stores. And I remember seeing a guy 
who was a prolie that I'd arrested before. It was just my daughter and I. And I, I was thinking like, okay, if this goes down, I'm going to tell my daughter she needs to run over this way. I'm going to pull out my gun if I need to. But it's just that that stress. And so what I often say when I've been interviewed is, and again, I'm not putting anything against the military or down, but so let's say our, our veterans or active military members that are in combat or that are in a hostile zone, you know, they deploy to a, a set area. The enemy is pretty well defined. I mean, I know they can look different and be disguised, but you know, you know that you're in a hostile area and eventually you're removed from that area. Maybe you go back stateside, you're now in a safe area, safe zone. And so you have time to decompress and to adjust. Whereas civilian law enforcement, we have careers that can be 20 up to 30 years. And we never are taken out of that combat zone or that hostile zone. I mean, we're literally in combat every single day, because like I said, every single contact is a potential lethal threat. And even just being at Starbucks in the morning to get your cup of joe or out on your code seven, your meal break, somebody could come in and want to gun you down or take you out just because you're a law enforcement officer. And so that heightened awareness, I mean, yeah, you know, again, if you're in a combat zone, that may be six months, maybe a year, maybe once, twice, three times in a career. But think about 20, 30 years, 24 seven, being on edge, being on guard. I mean, that takes a toll. Brent knows this and our listeners, if they've ever listened for any length of time, they know this. I'm a dork. Okay. I try to explain it to people that if you have a rock that, that's in a stream, that, that's a moving stream, that rock gets worn down over time, but the edges become smooth. Where in law enforcement, the edges become more jagged, that we become rougher. I struggle with trying to explain to people that it's not usually one particular event. There may be a triggering event, but it's the culmination. It's the cumulative effect of all the events that tend to happen in law enforcement. What was that what you found during your career as well? Yes. And that's the thing is, so when we talk about, you know, critical events or just any event that really is going to affect us, I mean, these can happen every day. They can happen multiple times a day. And just as some simple examples of, of, I would say, numerous or repeated calls that we go to would be, you know, suicide attempts or actual completed suicides, even just natural deaths. I can't tell you, I've probably been to over 50, 100 just natural deaths where there was no crime, no suspicious circumstances, but literally we have to go to someone's house and there's a dead body and we have to console grieving family members and we have to deal with it and make notifications or you know, child abuse, sexual assault cases, even just, you know, domestic violence or family disturbances. And then we have opiate overdoses, you know, car accidents, some that are severe injury, some that are fatal. I mean, now we're seeing more and more pedestrians hit by cars. And so just being exposed to that level of physical injury and trauma and, and, and that alone. And so we're talking about take that through a 20, 30 year career, and it's estimated that it's 500 plus critical incidents. I mean, think about that, 500 critical incidents, and that's a conservative estimate. Some people, it could be well over that. Whereas the average citizen, you know, we all have trauma. We all face things in our lives. They may have one, two critical incidents in their entire lifetime. And we're talking about 500. And like you said, you never know what that one incident that's gonna push you over the edge or be the tipping point. It's not always the most serious incident. It's just a lot of it has to do with like what's going on in your personal life at that time. You know, what are you dealing with, whether that's family issues, divorce, sickness, financial problems, you know, because we have all those issues as well. And then it's just all this trauma stacked up over years that we don't talk about, we don't address, it just stays bottled up. And eventually it's like that jar that just overflows and everything starts coming out all at once. And I think that's where a lot of people both externally and internally struggle when somebody, when, when it does overflow, they look, they tend to look at that one single event and think to themselves, how in the world could that have elicited this type of response? How could that, have, how could this event right here 
be overwhelming and it's because they're just seeing that event they're not seeing uh, as they talk about icebergs you know you only see the tip of the iceberg what's below the water is much much larger i think that that's where maybe as a profession we've struggled because we focus on the one event rather than the cumulative we do and we also focus on the physical injuries versus the mental injuries and as an example with what you just said this happened to me where you know, I was having back issues and I can remember specific events where I strained my back or I pulled my back. And then one day I literally just stepped off the curb at work. That's all it was. It wasn't a big deal. But because of all that micro trauma that happened in my back, it was stepping off that curb for whatever reason at that time, at that moment, it just sent, you know, shooting pain up my back. And so again, it wasn't the curb that did that. It was all that happened before that. That was just kind of the breaking point, like you said. And and here's the facts, you know, mental health, mental um, illness, or what I call post-traumatic stress injury, it's an actual physical injury to the brain. It's a proven fact that repeated exposure to trauma, it not only causes a physical change to the human brain, but also a chemical change. And so we can treat that just like we can treat a physical injury. And this is where we need to smash the stigmas. We need to treat the mental injuries, just like the back injury or the shoulder injury or the knee injury, we need to address it, have a plan and move forward. As a professional, we, we like tangible. We like things that we can touch, things that we can photograph, things that we can document. And we struggle with things that we can't. We like numbers a lot because we can count them. You know, we, we struggle with things like crime prevention. Why? Because how do you quantify it? How, how do you prove that you did that? And I think it's the same thing with mental health. We struggle with it because if I break my arm, I can take an x-ray. I can see even an internal injury. But when we're talking about an injury to the brain, it's something that I think we believe it. But I think that if we acknowledge it, I think we also have to acknowledge that it could happen to us as well. You're right. And let's take it also that it's a, it's considered to be a sign of weakness and shameful for you to admit that you have an issue where, or you have feelings or emotions. And that's the thing, this is all normal to have, you know, emotions, to have a reaction to a horrific event that is normal. And we actually make it abnormal to have those things. And that's, that's the real problem is so, you know, yeah, it's not as tangible. Can't necessarily see it. There's a stigma associated with it because nobody wants a disorder. And then you have this, you know, thing that we have to always feel like we're invincible, like we're Superman or Superwoman, where nothing is going to touch us, nothing is going to affect us. And so we try to disassociate, which works for a while. And we tell ourselves that none of this is bothering us. But really, internally, it is bothering us and it's building up. And we just need to acknowledge it and just talk about it. It doesn't have to be a big deal. But as these things are happening, just acknowledge, like, yeah, that was a horrible call. And you know, I couldn't sleep last night. I was having nightmares and I couldn't get this image out of my mind. That's not weakness. That's not shameful. That's just saying, hey, I trust you enough to let you know that this bothered me and I'm just venting right now. I'm getting off my shoulders. And that action alone right there, that helps. That starts the healing process. And I think a lot of times it's we put it on ourselves because if you say, hey, I'm having trouble, I'm, I'm having weakness right now, even if you get past that, you think, well, am I going to be taken seriously next time? Am I going to be, are they going to look at me as credible next time? Or are they going to think, am I still weak? Well, that's what prevented me from asking for help. I mean, in my case, I suffered in silence for over four years and it got me to the point where I didn't want to be here anymore. I started pur purposely putting myself in dangerous situations, hoping I died in the line of duty. So basically the opposite of suicide by cop, I was hoping for suicide by a bad guy. And, and so you're absolutely right. That's the reality is this is preventing so many people and so many people are out there suffering in silence, but they're also thinking they're the only one. They think something's wrong with me. No one else is going to understand this. No one else is going to feel this way. And it wasn't until I got into my recovery that I realized, man, there's countless of my brothers and sisters out there who have the same feelings, who are going through the same things. And I learned how normal it really was. Maybe your experience hopefully was a bit different, but when we start having those times where we're feeling down, I always tell people it's a lot like going to a, a middle school dance. 
And what I mean is it's just completely awkward and nobody wants to say a word. Nobody talks to anybody. They kind of stand off to this. I mean, you're with your best friend and it still feels awkward. And, and unfortunately, that's the way it is in a lot of our agencies because there still is that stigma attached to it. There is. I mean, I, I speak all across the country in the United States. And every time I speak, I get a line of people that want to come up and share their story and talk about what they're going through. And there's so many stories I've heard where people have asked for help and there's been repercussions or they've been put out on an island where nobody wants to be associated with them. Everyone treats them like they've got some contagious disease. And they think that if I get too close to this person or if I talk to them, now I'm going to get it. And you've got administrations that think, oh, man, if we open this door, Pandora's box, then we're going to lose all our staffing. No one's going to want to work. Everyone's going to be off on injury. And it's like, no. No, it's not going to happen if we just normalize this and make it routine and normal to talk about this as it's happening, you know, and and that's the thing is, so what happens when that one person does ask for help, everyone else is watching. So everyone else in that agency is going to watch how that person's being treated. And if they're being shunned, if they're not getting the support, why on earth would anybody else ever ask for help? The tipping point for you, if you don't mind me asking, and then kind of a follow up to that, what were the steps that helped you get into the recovery process? Because I think that's important to, to see the event that maybe triggered things, but then the path that you began to heal. And again, I'll keep this part brief because it's a very long story. And I talk about this fully in, in my new book. But the critical incident that kind of sent me over the edge was a fatal officer involved shooting, which happened the morning after Christmas. And basically, it was a guy with a butcher knife who was trying to kill a couple barricaded inside a condominium. And then we got there trying to save the couple and the guy with a knife turned his attention on myself and my officers and tried to kill us. And so that incident really had a severe effect on me. And it started a kind of a chain reaction where I was having constant nightmares. I was isolating. Um, I started drinking too much. I wasn't talking with my family. Uh, We got sued right away by the family. So I endured a four year federal lawsuit where I ended up on trial in San Francisco in federal court and faced a year after year depositions and just all this negativity. And I told myself, once this trial is over, everything is going to get better. You know, I can go on with my life. It's kind of, it was a lie that I told myself. And so we went to trial in 2016. It went a full two weeks and we ended up winning actually, but that trial had a really severe effect on me because it started making me second guess myself and it brought all that trauma right back there in the courtroom and the guy that tried to kill me had an identical twin brother that was in the courtroom right behind me so it's like this face that i couldn't get out of my nightmares for four years and that's a trigger right there well yeah and that's what i'm saying is like so i'm being exposed to this guy and it's like i've had nightmares with the same face for four years and so when the trial ended that's when I really just started nosediving. And so that November after the trial ended in September, my best friend, his name is John Davison. And I talk about in the book, he's got his own chapter. He's a Vietnam veteran, but he was a 35 year reserve officer with my department. He tried killing himself when I was on duty. And I didn't realize that he was suffering from post-traumatic stress injury from the Vietnam war because he never talked about it. And he was dealing with a bunch of personal things in his life. And I remember feeling the guilt and the shame of why I didn't do something to stop it. You know, why didn't I see the signs? And I started thinking about my young daughter at the time, thinking, what's going to happen if I'm not here? And if I die on duty, is she going to blame herself? And what's going to be that ripple effect? So thank God he survived. And a month after that, on the anniversary of my shooting, so December 27th, 2016, I finally, I had a breakdown in my car for like two hours I finally pulled out my phone and called my on-duty watch commander. And I said, look, I can't do this anymore. I need help. And that's what started the process. And thank God I was put in touch with a a very good therapist, a culturally competent therapist who only works for first responders. On our first meeting, she told me a very personal, tragic story. But by doing that, she broke down the walls. And I knew in that moment I could trust her with my life. And so that started this this first time that in my life, really, that I could just share anything and everything and not worry about being judged, not worried about the ramifications. She then told me about these first responder support meetings 
that are all over the place. I had no idea. So I started going to those. And again, that's where I really met other first responders who were sharing their stories. And that's where I realized I wasn't alone, that I wasn't unique, that there really isn't something wrong with me, that this is actually normal and that there's tools and tons of resources out there to address this. And that started my process, which was, I mean, over two years, and I'm still in recovery technically, and there's still things that I need to do. And, you know, I talk about that process fully in my book, but people need to understand that the longer you wait to get help, the longer the recovery is going to take. And there's not one magic thing that works for everybody. And in most every case, it's a combination of different things that get you to where you need to be. And, and like I said, there is recovery. I have a whole new life on the other side of this, but it took years of work, years of recovery. And there's things, like I said, now to maintain this, I've got to do. It's important to point out here that the triggering event was something where you guys did the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. And yet it still had a negative impact on your mental well-being. A lot of times, and it's not to minimize uh, victims, a lot of times victims will suffer from PTSI. Something was done to them. And I think people struggle a lot of times. It's like, well, that's what you train to do. That's what you're trained to do your entire career. You, you, you probably saved some people's lives by doing what you did. It was tremendous good. And you probably got an award for doing what you did. So how could it have a negative impact on you? But they do. And, and I think that's something that perhaps people struggle with as well. Well, another misconception in line with that is that if you were to watch the news or TV shows here in the United States, you would think that most every officer is involved in multiple shootings over their career. <laughs> and and the reality is that less than 1% of all police officers are ever involved in a fatal shooting where they have to take a life. And on top of that, people think that these cops that are involved in shootings, they it happens and they just go on with their life like nothing happened. And, you know, I took a life and I have to live with that. And it doesn't matter to me that, you know, we save lives. It was the right thing because in this case, we don't know why this guy did what he did. He wasn't a hardened criminal. He wasn't a bad person until that moment, until that moment. And we don't know if it was a mental snap, if it was a drug induced psychosis, because he had no history of mental illness. And so again, yeah, we save lives. That's a fact. But again, I have to live with the fact that I took somebody's son away from their parents, their step parents, their grandparents, and I'm a father. And I couldn't imagine what that would be to lose my daughter. And so, you know, anybody out there listening or watching this, it's like that incident, which was in 2012, it will affect me for the rest of my life. Now, we want we want folks to read further your book. It is Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. So you can we'll put a link to that in the show notes. They can find it. It's on Amazon and other uh, book retailers. But personally speaking, as uh, just a regular civilian, I'd heard of PTSD, I'm aware of that, but I'd not heard the term PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury. How are they similar? How are they different? That, if you can kind of explain that to just the lay person. Absolutely. So post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, that's the official name. That's what's in the DSM. It's in the psychology books. That's the technical diagnosis when you're talking about doctors or workers' comp. Uh, but the problem is with that last word, disorder. So disorder has a very negative connotation for it to people, not just first responders, but anybody. And that word disorder makes it feel like a couple things, like I'm stuck with this, I have no choice, there's nothing I can do about this. And that's not true, you know, but an injury, by changing it to an injury says, okay, there's an explanation for this, which is exposure to trauma. And in our cases, it's usually repeated trauma. And like I said, there's, and this is proven, it's not, you know, a myth or a thought, but there's tons of brain scans, brain imagings that have been done. And like I said, it's proven that exposure to trauma has a physical change and a chemical change to the human brain. But also with that, when you start the recovery process, you can heal some of that physical trauma to the brain. And that's where it gives the hope that where it gives you a plan. Cause like I said, if somebody has a back injury, a knee injury, a shoulder injury, which is very common for all first responders, there's a plan. You know, usually it's like, go see the doctor, 
okay, we're going to give you some Motrin. You're going to go to physical therapy. If that doesn't work, okay, let's try injections, physical therapy. That doesn't work. Maybe we got to do surgery and then physical therapy and so on and so on. There's a plan. There's a path. And so with post-traumatic stress injury, there's a diagnosis, there's a path, there's a plan, you know, you can recover, you can get better. But just like with a shoulder injury or knee injury, you're never going to be that same person that you were before post-traumatic stress injury. You're not. I'm a very different person today than I was before I started civilian law enforcement. And a lot of that's actually good. But same with a bad shoulder, bad knee, it's never going to be as good as it was before the injury or the surgery happened. It's the same exact thing. How, how did writing the book fit into your recovery process? And, and, and I ask that because you have to be incredibly vulnerable and transparent when you're writing and telling your story. So, so where does that fit in into the, the process for you? So again, kind of a long story, but um, I never envisioned talking about this stuff publicly. So not even a book, but public speaking, podcast interviews, Back in 2019, so after I'd retired, a guy reached out to me on LinkedIn. His name was Danny Bird. He ran a fitness podcast called Iron Crew Athletics. Turns out he was a previous cop. He hits me up and says, hey, I'd love to have you on my show. You know, talk about what you're doing, mental health, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I'm not interested. You know, thanks, but it's not my thing. And thankfully, this guy harassed me, kept bothering me. And finally, he's like, look, dude, he's like, I will drive the two and a half hours to you. You name the spot. I just need an hour of your time. And so finally I committed and I'm the kind of guy I don't back out once I commit. And so sure enough, I met him at this Mimi's cafe in the back room. I thought we were going to get to know each other, have breakfast, kind of hang out. He's like, sorry, bro, but I got to be out of here in an hour. So we had the laptops, the camera set up headphones. He's like, we're just going to do this. And so I sat down and he just started asking me questions. And I remember I just, I just answered him. I'm like, let's just do this. And this is where the power happened because once that got aired, you know, I was trying to control all of that. Like most of the people I worked with had no idea why I retired. They had no idea the things I had gone through, including most of my family members. And I was trying to like protect it from getting out, you know, from being embarrassed, being ashamed because I was still embarrassed and ashamed years into my recovery. You know, I'm not today, but once that got out there, I started getting messages from all over the world, from Australia, the UK, from Canada, all over the US, from people sharing their stories and talking about how my story, you know, really was like their story and how common and similar that we were. And so that got me eventually into more interviews, which led to speaking. And then now fast forward to right before COVID, Doc Springer, my co-author, I didn't know her. Um, she reaches out to me on LinkedIn again and just says, hey, I want to set up a phone call get to know you, see what you're doing, tell you what I'm doing. I'm like, yeah, sure, let's do this. So we have a phone call and she talks about stellate ganglion block, which is a uh, medical procedure to treat the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And we talk about this in the book. And at the time I was like, ah, this sounds kind of weird. I don't know. But then I tell her my story and she says, hey, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, I have, but honestly, I'm just, I'm burnt out. I don't think I have the fortitude or the, the focus or the motivation to get something like that done. So we end our conversation. A couple months later, she hits me back up and she's like, look, as a clinical psychologist working with combat veterans, you know, for the VA, TAPS, she's like, I've heard hundreds of trauma stories, but your story, it's sticking with me. And your story is going to save countless lives. She said, I want to do this book. I want to make this book happen. And in that moment, I hadn't even met her in person. I said, let's do this. And so COVID happens. And we literally did this for the first year via like weekly Zoom meetings for two hours without even meeting. I mean, it's this thing is it's far different than any other book out there. It's very unique the way it's structured. And every chapter has two parts. The first part is my story and my voice all the way back to childhood to current day. But the second half of every chapter, Doc Springer she breaks it down, explains everything in very easy to understand terms. And we truly show the human behind the badge, the human behind the uniform. So this book has, you know, not only the real gut-wrenching story, but it has the answers in the path to recovery from a clinical psychologist along with it. And so it's very balanced. 
but it's just a very powerful book. Like I said, I don't know of anything else out there like it. If anybody's listening to this podcast, they know I'm a big believer in the power of words. And I love that in the title, you used winning rather than surviving. I think that's incredibly important because this is something, this is a battle that can be won. Surviving isn't nearly enough. How has winning been for you? You, you said that this side of recovery is great. What, what, what makes it great? Why, why is it so much better than it was before when literally you were just surviving? You know, honestly, it's how I look at the world. It's how I look at everything. I used to be a very black and white person. And now I have much more empathy. I have much more compassion. You know, when somebody I busted on the street was using drugs or committing crimes, you know, most of these people aren't evil. They're just making bad decisions based on, you know, circumstances they've had in their life that have led them to addiction most oftentimes. And in my recovery work, I worked with a lot of alcoholics and addicts who are first responders. And I used to judge these people. I Now I don't judge them. I look at them totally different. And I wonder to myself, like, what led them there? You know, what happened in their lives? Because we all have a story, no matter who we are, no matter what we do, we all have a story. And that story can not only heal us, but it can heal others. And so, you know, and I used to be so focused on my job and my career. Like we talked about early on, remember I had a path, like my goal was to be chief of police someday. And so I put my family on the back burner because I thought my career was most important. But now, you know, I'm retired. I'm not working because my daughter, she's still in school and I have her half the time. And my focus is her. I take her to school every day. I pick her up. I go to her games, go on field trips. Like I'm present, not just physically present. I'm emotionally present every single day. And when I get up, it's like, I truly appreciate the things around me. When I go for a hike, and I'm out in nature, I look at things totally different. And, and that's the thing is I feel like I was living kind of in this very just dark tunnel when I was working. And I was so focused on the job. And I became so pessimistic. And I had such a negative view of people and of the world. Whereas now I have a much more positive outlook on everything around me. And that's, that's the difference is that now, like you said, I'm not surviving. I am truly living life to the fullest right now. The important thing I think is when it comes to your daughter is that you have shown her not to sit and suffer to ask for help. The things that you're doing for future generations of not only your family, but people that are listening right now. Hey, if I get help, I'm doing something that's going to affect people far beyond me. That's the important part. And if you don't get help, it's also going to have a ripple effect of people far beyond you. And right. that's, and that's the key. And, you know, I had my daughter read it and she was only 12 years old. And I remember when she read the book, she had this very sad look in her eyes and we, we had a really good discussion. I said, look, you know, that's not where I'm at now. That's where I was then. But like you said, I got help and, and I'm, I'm in a much better place. I'm not never going to go back to that spot. But you know, me being the parent, it's kind of like when I talk about leadership, that we need leaders to be vulnerable and be open because how do we expect our subordinates or in this case, we're talking about family as a parent, how can we expect our kids to open up to us and be vulnerable if we're not willing to be vulnerable ourselves? Normalizing that openness, I believe to be is the first step to smashing the stigma. It has to come from somewhere. Ideally, it comes from higher up in the organization. Uh, but mo most grassroots type of, of movements have usually started with people with no formal leadership uh, positions. Somebody has to step up. You're willing to take a, a bullet for your brother or your sister. How about will being willing to be open with your brother or your sister so that it normalizes it? Sometimes it needs... Uh, someone needs to put a face on something in order for everyone else to go, oh, okay, well, then I, I can come forward with this, too. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you guys are hitting it on the head. I couldn't agree more. If somebody wanted to, to find out more about your book or if they wanted to find out more about having you as a speaker to come and share your story, an incredible story, what's, what's the best place for them to get a hold of you or find that information? So Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. Right now, it's only on Amazon, on Kindle, or paperback or hardcover. But we actually just recorded the Audible version. It's currently in editing. And it's going to be phenomenal because it's recorded in our own voices. So Doc Springer and I 
recorded, but it's not just reading the book. It's literally with passion, with emotion. And so when you listen to the audible, it's going to be like being live at a speaking presentation and it's, it's, it's going to knock your socks off. So first off, look for that. It's coming. And we also just released it to where it is going to be picked up by other businesses and manufacturers. So I'm thinking within the next month, you're probably going to see it like at Barnes and Noble or Target or these other, you know, places. But at first it was just Amazon. So um, the book is there. Highly, highly recommend it. As far as me personally, I'm on pretty much every platform. And uh, worst case scenario, just Google my name, Sergeant Michael Segru. I, I just want to say thank you for, for the courage that you have shown. It took a tremendous amount of courage for the triggering event to put yourself out there physically at risk. But it also requires a tremendous amount of courage to put you out there mentally and emotionally and I want to personally thank you for, for being willing to do that because that's the type of courage that continues to save lives. The story goes on and people benefit from it. So thank you for what you're willing to do and what you are doing. Well, thank you. And I, I tell people all the time that the most courageous and bravest thing I've ever done in my life was asking for help. It was nothing in the military. It was nothing on the streets, including that shooting. And you know, for years, I was embarrassed, ashamed about this. But I now know, like you said, asking for help, it takes courage, it takes bravery. But the key is to know that you're not alone, that there is help out there. And more importantly, there is hope. And I hope that there are people that are listening to this episode right now that are thinking to themselves, I don't know what to do. I don't know who to ask. I feel alone. And they hear you and they are inspired to go get help. And we will put the resources in the episode page for this episode so they can get that help that they need. Outstanding. And yes, no, too, also in the back of our book, we do have an entire resource section as well. And we're setting up a website for the Audible version where people can go to the website and it's going to have the same resources that are vetted and listed in the back of our book. Excellent. And again, the name of the book is Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. It is available on Amazon. We will put a direct link in the show notes of the episode page so folks can go and get it right there. Michael, it has been uh, a pleasure to have you come on and I appreciate your courage and, and the candidness that you've, you've had with us today, taking that stigma away because I think it needs to go away. Well, thank you. And thanks for all the work you guys are doing. I appreciate it. It's my honor to be on here today.